Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Welcome to another episode of Stem Cells at Lunch Digested, a podcast hosted by King's College London, Centre for Gene Therapy and Regenerative Medicine, where we explain scientific research in simpler words so everyone can understand the major breakthroughs in each field. My name is Ines Tomás. I will be the moderator for this episode. I am a PhD student in the Watt Lab and my studies focus on the microenvironment of oral squamous cell carcinoma. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Professor Andrew Ewald. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. For those listening online, Professor Ewald did his undergraduate degree in physics, followed by his doctoral in biochemistry and molecular physics, and then his postdoc work in epithelial biology and breast cancer. So my first question is, what drew your attention away from physics and towards cancer biology? Sure. It was a three-step process for me. I was very interested in physics as an undergraduate, but I was actually also very interested in biology. And so I, I sought out opportunities at the interface, which at the time when I was an undergraduate student seemed most interesting at the, at the molecular interface between the two, thinking about protein structure, protein folding, protein engineering. So when I was interviewing for graduate school, that was what I, um, that was the people I chose to interview with. Every place I went, I said, oh, I want to talk to the protein engineers and the, pro and the structural biologists. And then by chance, um, there's sometimes, um, there's things I've planned out and have come true 10 years later, and there's things that were chance in my life. Um, when I interviewed at Caltech, um, I got assigned to meet with Scott Frazier, whose work I was completely unfamiliar with, who was working in embryology. Um, and I went to his office, this was in 1997, and we're, you know, we're talking, he'd also trained in physics and biophysics. And he said, well, you know, what he does now is he tries to understand how the, um, how the embryo forms. And he said, we've worked for years now to build light microscopes so that we can watch in real time as cells form the brain, the hearts, the heart, the lungs, um, different tissues. He said, would you like to see a movie in three dimensions of how the brain forms in real time? And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds great. Who wouldn't? <laughs> and he showed a movie. And, yeah, exactly. And I got to watch the cells of the brain segment and form its structure. It showed a different movie. We got to watch the craniofacial skeleton form. Um, let's look at the heart and the muscles. And I was like, wow, this is completely different than anything I thought was possible. I'm just going to do this. This sounds awesome. And so I changed my life in the course of an hour of conversation. Um, as I did that, I learned to build microscopes. I learned to um, culture tissues, organs, and embryos. And I started thinking about how could I apply this? By the end of my PhD, I was very interested in applying this um, to the right problem. I knew I had a great toolkit. I wanted to find the right problem. And I met Zena Werb um, at a Gordon conference, and she presented a talk where she, she talked about, I was thinking about early embryos and just how do the first few steps go. And she gave this sweeping talk about how organs form and how they change during aging and how they change during disease. And she talked about layer upon layer of biological information that I was simply ignorant of. I was uh, intellectually embarrassed that there was all of these layers of, of molecular exchange and communication between cells that were clearly important for disease that I didn't have any knowledge of at all. And so I, again, my life changed in an hour and I said, I gotta go work with her and, and learn a lot more biology. It's great to know physics, but when you're studying biology, it's important to know biology too. And I was like, if I go to her lab for five years, I'll come out of there a biologist. And it worked, I did. And so I came, um, I worked on the development of the normal breast in her lab. I also worked on how um, 
changes in those categories of information exchange over time drive the formation um, of breast tumors and then their eventual spread through the body. In my laboratory here at Johns Hopkins, um, we work on the development of the normal breast, but most of the lab, about um, a dozen people, are working on how breast cancer spreads through the body and forms tumors in distant organs. Great um, journey you've had. So you touched on, on that topic. Um, I think it would be important to explain to our audience how is cancer different from any other disease? What is so special about this specific disease that have been giving us so many challenges um, and so much great research to, to un unravel what is unknown still? Sure. I want to start uh, my response to that by saying that we first need to acknowledge the tremendous um, burden that, that cancer plays in our lives and in our families' lives and in our society. It's a um, tremendous cause of suffering and death. Um, and at a biological level, what makes it so difficult, I wish I could tell you that we've already won and all forms of cancer are fully understood and could be treated successfully. Instead, I'm forced to stand here and say, there's been partial victories. There's some cancers that are effectively cured. There's some cancers where there's very effective treatments. And there's some cancers where the treatments are not effective enough for the patients. Um, what makes it particularly challenging is that it's the result of changes in the properties of your own cells. If you think about a bacterial infection, you think about pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, the problem fundamentally is the presence of a large number of cells which are not human, right? And there's a lot of ways in which a bacterial cell is different from a human cell that you can target drugs to eliminate them. So bacterial pneumonia generally can be cleared pretty successfully. Cancer by definition is a problem of your own cells. This gives you a limited ability for drugs to come in and target those cells without causing tremendous damage to other organs. The last challenge I wanna, I wanna put out there is that we're only seeing, we're seeing cancer typically at relatively late stages. When, when a patient presents in the clinic and they have cancer, their body's been fighting for a long time and typically very effectively, right? But by the time you get to the patient, by, you get to the doctor, by the, almost by definition, the cancer started to win or has, has been winning for a while. And so you're having to reverse a lot of damage um, with a highly heterogeneous tumor. And that nonetheless, as I said, there's, some of them are effectively curable, some of them are very manageable. Um, so does, does that get to what you were looking for from that question? Yeah, yes, it does. Um, and I actually touch on, on the topic that cancer is problematic because it's our own cells, but um, maybe from our audience, some of the questions that might be raised would be, but we have the immune cells that are supposed to to target these our own cells that are malfunctioning. Um, what is wrong with the immune cells um, that they are not recognizing these, these malfunctions? Sure. So I want to start by saying that um, statistically, there's statistical evidence that, that a large fraction of tumors that form are actually successfully cleared by the immune system. So a lot of tumors start to form, your immune system clears them, and you never even know you were sick, right? And the ones where you present to the doctor, the um, immune system is actively trying to recognize and kill the cancer cells. But the challenge is that there can be changes both in the microenvironment, right, which is one of the topics for today, which is the, all of the features around the cancer cell, which can make it more difficult for the immune system to function. And also, the cancer cell, the tumors that get big enough that they're detected clinically, there's often features of the cancer cells 
which reflect their ability, they've acquired abilities, um, to talk to the immune cells directly and tell them to stop attacking. So we did a paper a couple of years ago. Um, biologists are often bad at naming things. They often come up with very obscure or difficult names. But we worked on a population of cells called natural killer cells. What are these cells good at? Killing cells, right? So these are a type of innate immune cells, and they're good at detecting cells that are in the wrong place. Right, so if a cancer cell spreads to a distant organ and a natural killer cell finds it, it's like, oh, you're, you're a cell in the wrong place. You don't have permission to be here, right? I don't like your, your, um, your permissions. And so it'll try to kill that cancer cell. This works very efficiently. However, some of those cancer cells have figured out ways to express molecules on their surface that talk to molecules on the surface of the natural killer cells that get them to stand down and actually start helping the cancer cells build metastases. So we've worked hard to try to understand that communication and figure out ways to interrupt it. Yeah, thank you very much. So that will um, lead to my next question. If you could explain in just a few sentences, what would you say that is the main um, targets of the research made by your sure. group? So we're particularly interested in understanding how cancer cells talk to each other at their surface, right? The surface of the cell you want to think of it as being bristling with, right? Different proteins sticking out of the membrane that are able to detect signals in the environment and are able to directly connect to other cells. So we've done a lot of work to show that those connections between the cells are actually very important to the metastatic process. And in fact, the cells that are best at traveling through the body don't do so as individuals. They do so in small groups stuck to each other through this type of molecular Velcro. And this molecular Velcro isn't just structural. It doesn't just hold the cells together. It sends a lot of signals inside the cancer cell that allow it to survive. So we're very interested in understanding how to interrupt those survival signals and cause selective death of the cancer cells that have spread through the body. So it sounds like a very complex system, like not cancer by itself, it's already very complex and difficult to study. Um, so can you tell us a bit of the models of which um, you use in your lab to study this situation? How do you make it simpler so that is easy to understand the signals that are going, uh, that are going on, but also not too simple so that then you actually know this is a real Sure, situation. that's a terrific question. Um, and I can say I don't have much left from my um, training in physics. I can't do math anymore at an interesting level. Um, but there is a tremendous belief in, in physics that if you look at a system <clears throat> and all you see is complexity and variation, that probably you haven't yet found the underlying simplicity below it. There's probably simple rules generating that apparent complexity. So I take that as sort of a north star throughout our research. So simple enough, but not too simple. So what we're very interested in doing is what we ground our research in is in models that spontaneously metastasize. So there's several types of animal models um, using, the, using the mouse where a single or a couple of genetic tricks will enable you to express genes that will cause tumors to form that then will metastasize to distant organs. Because um, you're doing this genetically, what you're able to do is form tumors in the presence of an intact immune system that then have to form metastases despite immune surveillance and attack. So that's our primary engine um, in the laboratory. We're able to get tissue out of those um, tumors, and a single tumor from one of those models 
yields a quarter million, so 250,000 mini tumors that we can explant into 3D gels in the laboratory to understand how they invade, how they access the blood vessels, and how they form metastatic tumors. When we get ideas there about how the, molecular, um, how the molecules are interacting to govern the process, we want to validate those in human tissue. So there's another type of animal model where a patient tumor is explanted into a mouse and then serially transplanted to allow you to study human cancer cells that have retained their tumor architecture and retained their tumor heterogeneity. And then the third level of validation, which is the hardest to acquire, right, and most um, limiting resource, but is to study directly patient tumor tissue in the laboratory and to, and to generate hypotheses that we can test in archival samples from the pathology department. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to ask, in your opinion, which experimental tools or technology are we missing so that we can take cancer research to the next level? What or in the past, what was missing that now is life changing and that have made huge breakthrough? What, what, what was in the past unthinkable sure. and that we have today? What would you guess that is the next? Sure, I like thing. to be an optimist, so I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about um, successes and opportunities, um, and challenges overcome. So this 3D culture, the idea that you can take tissue out of an organ or out of a tumor, put it in a laboratory. I want you to picture raisins in a Jello mold, right? So you've got raisins floating in Jello. They're fully surrounded by a three-dimensional network of proteins. Um, that's been transformative across every area of mammalian development and disease because things that were happening deep inside the animal or deep inside the patient over weeks to months to years to decades can now be observed in real time in three dimensions in live cells um, in these three-dimensional cultures. So those observational techniques needed to be brought together with genetics and with imaging. We've definitely um, been leaders in this approach, but there's been leaders um, um, around the world um, bringing these three techniques together. The fourth key piece which has been brought into this type of analysis more recently has been present for a long time in analysis of, of uh, patient tumors, but it's been brought more recently into the arena of these 3D cultures is bulk and single cell sequencing. So the idea of bulk sequencing is you take a sample, you digest it all down, you get it, to, um, you purify it to whatever you're studying, right, the RNA, the DNA, or the proteins, and then you can sequence it and understand what's in there. Single cell sequencing, you take, a, you, you take that tumor or that organoid and you take it down to the single constituent cells and then individually process them to understand at the individual level what's their DNA, what's their RNA, what's their proteins. That has been um, transformative for our ability to understand the molecular programs driving metastasis. I would say a major challenge right now is that all of the sequencing techniques remain expensive and they remain... Um, difficult to interpret. So you really, you need to think, 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 run an experiment, think about it, think about it, think about it, run another experiment, um, because each experiment can cost ten, fifty, dollars $100,000. Um, so you can't just have everyone in the lab doing that every day of the week. If we could get those costs radically lowered, it would be, um, it would be transformative. We also benefit greatly from our work with um, leading computational and analytical scientists, so Joel Bader, Alana Fertig, Brian Camley, among others, who are able to help us do things with mathematics that we couldn't do alone, especially with regards to sequencing and understanding three-dimensional data. 
Great. So bringing back the physics, modeling, maths, biology, we can go anywhere yeah. individually. It's, right. it's a team effort. Um, yeah. So on that note, what, where do you think that the focus will be in, in onco research in, in 50 years? What will be I the sure hope in 50 there? years people read history books about cancer research because it's been so successful. So I'll, I'll bring that timeline a little closer. Where are we now and where are we headed? I think there's tremendous excitement about the ability to harness the immune system to fight cancer. I would say there's a broad school of thought that most successful um, um, treatment responses from cancer, whether the treatment was chemotherapy, radiation therapy, targeted therapy, or specifically immune therapy, is ultimately critically reliant on the immune system attacking the tumor. And that some of those other um, therapy modes, like simple chemotherapy, which kills cancer cells, radiotherapy, which kills cancer cells, is leading to good results when it's releasing messy, there's causing messy cell death, and the immune system is able to learn, oh, those are the bad guys, and attack them and clear the tumor. So there's tremendous interest right now in trying to understand how to expand our ability to help the immune system clear the tumors. The last 10 years have been absolutely world-changing in terms of understanding the role of checkpoint inhibitors in um, T-cell checkpoint inhibitors in immunotherapy to allow the T-cells in the tumor to clear the cancer. And for the patients that it works for, these are long-term durable responses. Some people are starting to use the word cure. Um, but there's too many patients for whom that those drugs are not effective. So let's say there's tremendous interest right now in trying to understand how do you help the immune system be even more effective, whether with a new treatment alone or a new treatment in combination with T-cell checkpoint inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So you are a professor at John Hopkins University, uh, the director of the Department of Cell Biology, and you've been mentioned as one of the world's most accomplished breast cancer researchers. So my question is, what were the findings that earned you these titles? What do you think that it was your key moment in your career? Um, how was your journey sure. so far? I would say um, the most important thing um, that I've done right in all of this is to pick really successful, really talented people and facilitate their success, right? You know, the funny thing about science is I, it's been... 15 years since anything I did in the laboratory with my hands mattered, right? I don't pipette the liquids. I don't image the cells. Um, so what do I do? I nucleate a set of people who do the research and do the work, right? So I think the first thing to say is to the extent that I'm, I'm viewed as um, successful on the international stage, it's because I've found an absolutely terrific set of people and unleashed their creativity, their energy, their drive on these problems. What are the discoveries that they made? Um, so I, I'll just highlight... Um, I'll highlight three or four. So um, Kevin Chung, who's a medical oncology fellow in my laboratory, was able to show that there was a common molecular biology to the cell's leading invasion across the subtypes of breast cancer. Um, and that invasion resulted from a dialogue between epithelial cancer cells in two different epithelial molecular states. It's a little bit jargony, but to say that the cancer cells were leading invasion and the cancer cells were in different states and cooperating. So that was in, um, published in Cell in 2013. That really changed the view of the field from being there's lots of types of breast cancer and they're all different to that at least there's some common molecular themes running through the work. Um, then there was a, a set of papers um, by Elia Shamir and Dan Georges that really established that what was called the epithelial to mesenchymal transition, 
this idea that you can turn on certain genes that'll turn on other genes, right, and drive radical changes in cell um, cell phenotype, right? That those that that process still critically relied on epithelial gene expression, right? That the the cell, the cancer cell, as it's migrating through the body, is still critically using the machinery that it used to build the original organ. So a mammary epithelial cell is using epithelial motors um, and epithelial adhesion programs, epithelial survival pathways to metastasize. That work's being followed up on in really brilliant ways by two postdocs, Dion Riette and Louise Grasset. Um, we also had a, a really nice paper getting into this idea of that molecular Velcro, right? How do the cancer cells that are um, traveling through the body in groups, right, connected to each other um, by these adhesion proteins, right? How does that work? And she was able to show, this is Veena Padmanabhan, um, she showed that e-cadherin, which is a direct linker between cells, is actually required for those cancer cells to metastasize, for invasive ductal carcinoma of the breast to metastasize. This radically changed the, the um, view in the field that cancer cells were losing cell adhesion in order to metastasize, and instead showing they were, um, they were retaining cell adhesion and critically relying on it in order to survive this very stressful journey through the body. So again, I want to conclude as I started by thanking the people who actually did the work. Thanks. Yeah, so I think that a common topic has been that we as individuals cannot cannot do anything by ourselves. Well, we need physics and mathematics and, um, and a team behind us. Um, do you have any advice that you would give to any young researchers or young adults thinking about starting a career in, in science? Um, kind of like a mentorship uh, advice that you would sure. share. So I would say um, my path has been a balance between following my passion and following my, the opportunities in front of me, right? The people say, oh, follow your passion, follow your passion. Well, if what you're passionate about is not what anyone else in the entire world of science is passionate about, it's really difficult to get traction. So when you think about my career, I laid it out at the beginning, right? I was in one field and then I saw an opportunity and I went to a different field. And I saw an opportunity, I went to an adjacent field. I saw an opportunity and I, and I changed direction. So it was really an open-mindedness to what was I most interested in, um, essentially crossed with what was seen as the most important problems, crossed with what was the greatest opportunity for impact on, on human health. Um, it's a difficult balance. Um, because if, you, if you're working on something that, you're not, <clears throat> that seems really important but you're not interested in it, you won't make any progress, right? You really need to have that passion for the, for the subject you're working on. At the same time, it needs to be the right moment, right? The, the, the tools need to be in place. Um, you need to be able to recruit resources and people to the ideas. So again, balance of following your passion and following the opportunities in front of you. Okay, what a great notes to finish on i think so i believe this will bring our interview to an end many thanks to professor ewald for sharing your expertise with us today i'm sure our audience learned a few new things today like microenvironments and natural killer cells and all of the big words we've talked um thank you to our audience for listening and don't forget to click follow and share on all of our streaming platforms and see you on the next episode mm -hmm.